the purpose of our program is to reduce the global impact of cybercrime and protect communities for a safer world. It's simple. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the world safer and we're trying to stop the harm from the cyber criminals impacting into our communities, whether that's someone just sitting at home playing PlayStation or something like that, or whether that's a large international business that has a ransomware attack and then is basically shut down for a period of time. So that's what our role is. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Craig Jones, Director of Cybercrime at Interpol. Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, David. Really pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. So, Craig, give us some idea about your background. Uh, how did you uh, get to where you are? And what experiences have you had in the past? Uh, I think you could say my experience has been fairly varied. I've been in law enforcement on and off for over 30 years. I joined uh, local policing in Hampshire in the UK back in 1990, went through the normal policing channels, um, had an injury on duty, so I had to re or change my career path at that stage, moved into forensics and digital. Probably the last 12 years has been more concentrating on cyber, working at a, a local and regional level in the UK, building out cybercrime units and teams then went to the National Crime Agency, was working a lot on the National Cybersecurity Strategy, building out law enforcement capabilities, running operations. And then probably about six years ago, saw an opportunity at Interpol, advertising for the Cybercrime Director. So I, I put an application in and supported by my country and uh, are successful in the position. So I've been at Interpol now for what just over four years, running Interpol's Global Cybercrime Program based in Singapore. Oh, fantastic. And congratulations. And uh, four years in, uh, seem to be doing well. That's great. You know, we've done a lot of work with Interpol at Team Cymru. Once upon a time, our underground economy conference was held every year at the Interpol headquarters in Lyon. was a very, very great uh, partnership. And we were very uh, honored to have the chance to uh, be in that building. You guys moved to Singapore, unfortunately, the team that we were partnered with. And that's uh, a little bit different of a stretch for most of our folks. So, but anyway, congrats. Well, hopefully, I, hopefully, we do, hopefully we do something about that and uh, have you out oh, here soon uh, I, as well. I think we'd be open to that. So, Craig, give us an idea. Like, what's the day-to-day -day look like, you know, at Interpol handling global cybercrime? So we're split. My director I run is split into three areas. I have cybercrime operations, cybercrime threat response, and cyber strategy and capability development. What I've done in the last sort of four to five years is take us to a more operational action-based directorate which is where we work with private partners. We bring data sets in from our private partners. We also bring police data sets in. We sort of then look at that, that threat picture, analyze it. And our focus is on cybercrime that's causing high harm, high impact, high volume, or high interest. So the sort of day-to-day -day piece is me working with our various teams based here in Singapore, where we have our centralized sort of threat response hub and our private partners. And then around the globe, so we have teams based in Africa, for example. So we provide data and intelligence into them. I have an assistant director who's seconded from the United States, Homeland Security. He runs that side. So again, what we're doing there is, is building out operational activities where we're going after the, the criminal actors in countries or infrastructure. But also the other side to that is, is the normal job of running a program. So your normal meetings, your budget meetings, things like that, planning. I was just in Hong Kong last week for their cyber symposium. Next week, I'm going to be in DC again 
football uh, Western Hemisphere conference organised by Department of Homeland Security. So yeah, whilst we've got the local piece, we've also got that, that global piece as well, but very much a focus on, on operational delivery. Okay, I see. So you mentioned kind of trying to address cybercrime that was high impact, high uh, volume, high cost. Give us an idea, like, so recently in the news was the QBot takedown and they were like largely used for spam and things like that. Is that something that would qualify in this or are you talking even bigger than things like that? No, that's sort of those sort of qualifiers. What Interpol is, we're, we're a non-executive body. So whilst in the UK, I could be a senior investigating officer and lead uh, operations investigations. At Interpol, we don't have that executive authority effectively. So our role here is to more to do that coordination and facilitation. And we do that, for example, by providing secure tools and platforms so countries can come on, use the Interpol tools and platforms securely. But on the flip side of that, we have the sort of the, that trust model. And I think the underlying part to cybercrime as well is, apart from the harm that criminals are causing, when we look at the countries and the geopolitics, sometimes those don't quite align. So what we try and do is act as that neutral bridge. And that's very much our role because we can only work in, in that crime space. So we would look to sort of facilitate and cooperate and coordinate those operations. And quite often, those countries are not able to share data and information directly. And their law enforcement officials are not able to speak directly. So again, our role then is to come in and help facilitate that as well. But that's then where you've got to build that trust model out. And whilst my team is probably made up from about 30 to 40 different nationalities, we mm -hmm. work for 195 countries. So yeah, it's quite a nuanced, I should suggest, sort of work that we do. Sure. Yeah, very, sounds like it. So what kind of specialities, so you, you mentioned having a team uh, working on this, what kind of specialities from law enforcement tend to lend themselves towards being assigned to Interpol roles? Is it like, is there a job posting where people say we're looking for a specific role? And how does all that work? Yeah, absolutely. Like any organization, we have various roles and positions. So this week, early this week, I interviewed for our assistant director of cybercrime threat response. So that person will be reporting directly to me. That's a seconded officer position. So first of all, you have to request member countries release staff to Interpol. So the way that we work is Interpol's made up of seconded officials and contract staff as well. So we've got like core staff and then I'm a seconded official. So I'll come in for a period of time, normally about three years, although I've been lucky I've, I've been extended out at the moment. So I'm going to be here for a little bit longer. So we have the seconded officials here. The challenge we have there, especially in cybercrime, is as you get expertise at a local, regional, sort of national level, you become quite a valuable commodity within your own organisation. So to then effectively lend those staff out to another organisation does cause some countries challenges in terms of, you know, well, we don't want this staff member to go because they're forming a, a really important role at the moment. But that's slowly changing. So for example, my head of my cybercrime intelligence unit, Evo, he comes from Brazilian Federal Police. Evo used to run their national cybercrime intelligence unit. So he was a perfect fit for us because coming from that region, first of all, he comes with a whole bunch of expertise, but also he has that management and technical knowledge, which we need. Now, the advantage of having someone like Evo in the team means he's able to, one, gain experience of really international working across the globe because the team he runs is looking at all the sort of threats. So when we're, we're looking at ransomware, we're looking at business email compromise, we're looking at phishing, we're looking at enablers, he's able to then get that global picture and use his previous experience at Interpol. We've just now got a new head for our Asian South Pacific desk, the operations, Horace. 
Horace has come from the Hong Kong police, and he came from their sort of cybercrime and technical background. So he's slightly different there to Evo because he's got an operational background. So we look to try and pull staff in that have an expertise even in operations or intel or strategy as well. So that's an important part of the policy side, which we'll probably talk about in a minute. So it's trying to blend all of those together and find good people. The challenge I have is, you know, I'm probably running at about 20% vacancies just okay. because the, the turnover of staff that we get on the secondment, because it's great, you come and get the experience, then you can take that back to your home agency. But then so the shortage effectively of in law enforcement. And again, you know, when we look across different countries, you look at the prioritization that goes on in their cybercrime work. Because it's not always reported in countries, it's not always a priority for countries to have those sort of teams. But that is, I can definitely see that is slowly changing now. Well, that's good to hear. Funny enough, Evo is a good friend of Team Cover. We've known him uh, for years since even since he was back in Brazil. Uh, very close friends with uh, some of our staff. Uh, I've met him a few times myself. So uh, excellent uh, top talent there. Good recruiting on, on Interpol's part. So you mentioned some of the challenges that you face related to kind of, you know, international legal relations when in particular around assessing, you know, impact of crimes and things like that. You also just mentioned staffing challenges. What are some of the other challenges that uh, your organization faces? And then with that, like, what are some of the misconceptions around the challenges that you guys face or what, you know, people imagine what your job must be like? What are some of the misconceptions? So I think some of the misconception is, you know, if you say to someone, what does Interpol do? And everybody thinks, ah, Interpol, you know, crashing through doors, jumping out of helicopters. Our actual role is more around facilitating and coordinating. I think one of one of the key pieces we have is able to aggregate data sets. And this is something that's really, really important. So, you know, cybercrime, I hear people say cybercrime is borderless. No, it's not for law enforcement. We are totally constrained by our borders when it comes to sharing data and information. So Interpol has a piece called Rules of Processing Data, which is a text of document sort of like that. And that gives very strict rules and guidelines because people think, well, we share data with Interpol, it will go off to another country. Yeah, of course it's going to go off to another country because we're looking to counter that crime. Let's bring this back to what is our purpose? The purpose of our program is to reduce the global impact of cybercrime and protect communities for a safer world. It's simple. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the world safer and we're trying to stop the harm from the cyber criminals impacting into our communities, whether that's someone just sitting at home playing PlayStation or something like that, or whether that's a large international business that has a ransomware attack and then is basically shut down for a period of time. So that that's what our role is. But I think you have that sort of geopolitical element to that as well. We're neutral. I cannot do any operational investigation if it has a political, military, racist, or religious nature to it. Our Article 3 within our Constitution precludes us from doing that. So again, these are some of these misconceptions. And I, you know, before I came to the organisation, I didn't quite understand what Interpol did. I worked very much through that European lens in the UK, working with Europol and other trusted partners, shall we say. I didn't quite understand what the role of Interpol was. Now I'm here, I'm not exactly being an evangelist, but, you know, it, it is seeing that light. It's about hang on, I've got access to 195 countries. I can pick up the phone to anybody in the world, the directory that we've got, and make a request or send an email or organise a meeting. And I think, you know, it's only when you're actually inside the organisation you really see that. Yeah. And it just comes back to that, that data side of things. 
being able to bring the data sets in that we're able to be able to work with organizations such as yourselves is at a national level, I would not have had access to a lot of this data because, you know, on a national level, you're working with international organizations, cybersecurity companies, you know, Trend Micro, Palo Alto, Group IB, Kaspersky. We can bring their data sets in. Mm-hmm. We can then use those data sets. And we're doing that time and time again now on our operators. We're providing information into countries which help prevent, detect, investigate, and disrupt cyber criminals because the bottom line of this is, the cyber criminals don't have those rules they have to play by. They are there primarily to make our lives a misery because they're trying to take money off us effectively. So most cyber crime that we deal with is financially motivated. So when you look at the underlying aspects of the cyber crime, it's like any business model. It's how are those criminals operating? How can we aggregate those data sets here at Interpol? And how can we then use those effectively with countries and help them sort of break out of this model of where, oh, well, we can't share that, or we can't go over after people in this country, we'll unseal an indictment, we'll say, yeah, you know, bad people doing bad things. My job as the Director of Cybercrime at Interpol is to bring that information in and then go to those countries where the infrastructure is or the criminals are or the money is sitting and see how we can disrupt that business model. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the private partnerships and whatnot. I would imagine they have insights, obviously, that they are have easier access to because uh, they don't require, you know, subpoena, things like that necessarily get it. And then they're able to give that to you. Presumably, most of that is lead purpose only or whatnot, I would imagine, given most of those relationships. But how is that? So you have presented this. It sounds like that makes the task much more easier to accomplish or not easier, but even possible, I think is a better word for it, makes it much more likely to accomplish. Is this capability, this concept, do you feel that it's, I hate to use the word trickling down, but is it, well, let's say permeating, is it permeating out into global law enforcement as a whole, or is a capability still somewhat unique to Interpol? So I think it's slowly permeating down. You know, we'll always have countries that will do operations together and work very, very well together. So that is a given in policing. It's like any, you know, law enforcement organization, you have different departments, you work together sometimes, sometimes you don't. And on a global basis, that's exactly the same. The model that we sort of devised is based on a number of different factors. First of all, we put a framework in place. So when I came in, you know, there was no resolution. So we, we're a, a members-based organization with a general assembly every year. So if I go to a general assembly, the members say, well, what are you doing about cybercrime? I say, well, we're doing this, this, and this. But then looking at it, we did not have a framework in place to say, right, this is what we're going to do. So the first thing was we, we put a resolution in place. We then took that out to the regional bodies that we have in Americas, Africa, Asia, South Pacific, and Europe, and did a recommendation based on the resolution. So they all signed up to it. And they all said, yes, we are going to counter and combat cybercrime. We now provide the tools and platforms to be able to come on to. So again, it comes back to that, start with all the basic things. You know, we used to do a lot of our operations based on Gmail and WhatsApp because that was the way only some law enforcement could work together. So we've now given them the secure platforms. Then working with the private partners, as you've highlighted, yeah, they, they give us tips and leads effectively. But what we're then able to do is share those with the police agencies in countries and say, look, here's a starter for 10, or here's some infrastructure that's compromised in your country. Now, you may not be able to do this because you don't have laws in your country to take that infrastructure down. But actually, when you look at the terms and conditions of that ISP, what these people are doing is actually illegal. 
So you go and have a conversation with ISP. So some of that is about educating law enforcement as well. So it is a sort of trickle down, but also it's a trickle up effect as well, because law enforcement agencies realize now they can work more effectively with Interpol because we are focusing on operations. We are looking at what does that threat landscape look like? What active intelligence do we need to do those operations? What are the different capabilities and capacity that law enforcement needs effectively to counter and combat cybercrime? So we're providing a lot of that. Now, we can't do everything. You know, whilst we're a global organization, we can only work on a consensus base and a trust-based model with, with police. And we have to build that trust. And we look at it as, I've called it creating communities to protect communities. That's the law enforcement model. Law enforcement officials come from the community. That's where we come from. So on behalf of the communities, we protect our communities. But the model we look at now, how we work with other communities, such as the private sector, such as the national certs, there's a lot of information and data out there. You know, We can see where those weaknesses and vulnerabilities are. And our role at Interpol is to bring that data in and turn that into, as we call them, cyber activity reports, which we then send out to the member countries. Now, it might be that there's a, you know, a zero-day vulnerability that's been identified. We will share that through our channels as well and amplify it because wise people think, yeah, there's some great information sharing networks out there. Sometimes it might not reach into certain countries or certain sectors. So again, we look to amplify those messages as well. Yeah, excellent. So you know, you mentioned kind of how geopolitics works in that there are some countries where they have, you know, maybe they don't have remit to enforce cybercrime or something like that. Uh, by the way, that's a crazy example that they turns out to be the ISP terms of service get get used. That's probably, you know, the only good application of terms of service probably uh, that people would ever say. But uh, but no, are there countries? I have heard of a few, but this will be great given your experience, your perspective here. Are there countries where it's not illegal to conduct cybercrime because it's their laws include only kinetic crimes? And are there countries where, for example, it's only illegal if you do it to other members of their country, where their judicial code specifically defines only other citizens as a possible victim? Give us some view of that landscape, if you would, kind of uh, from the place where there's no order to the place where there's selective order. So I think that's a really good point. So we do have some countries where the legislation is not up to date with how technology is used to facilitate crime. In the UK, in my operations and investigations, we didn't prosecute anybody for committing a cybercrime. It was not within legislation. It was called the Computer Misuse Act of 1990. So again, when we look at the different terminologies and the different languages, a lot of countries do have some sort of legislation uh-huh. but it may not be an equivalent to another country. Uh-huh. So stepping back from that, when you're trying to do an operation, you need to ensure that if you have a country where you have a load of victims and then they identify a perpetrator, that where that perpetrator may be based, the laws and legislation in that equates to that country as well. Uh-huh. Stepping back again and looking wider, currently at the United Nations, there's a process going on and There are global crime conventions, effectively, which come out from the United Nations. This is where the member countries, you know, negotiate text in a document and come up with a crime convention. There hasn't been a global crime convention or international crime convention in over 20 years. Last two years, there's a process been going on the United Nations, which we've heavily been involved in. 
and that is elaborating on a new convention to counter the use of information and communications technology for criminal purposes. I'm pretty sure I've got the right wording there. Effectively, yeah. people are calling it a new cybercrime convention. So coming back to my point about how do you get those countries to work together? Well, first of all, you need a global framework, effectively. Now, this is what this is hoping to pull together. We've had sessions of negotiations now at the United Nations, two weeks each time, either in Vienna or New York. I think it's January, February next year, we're going to have the final consolidated uh, session. We've been representing law enforcement globally at that. So that's where you have the countries negotiating the text. And this is where you have that really, really deep negotiation into, well, we don't want the word and there or shall, it should be could. So from my point of view, my policing career, I've never been involved in anything like this before. Yeah. That's been absolutely fascinating following that. But we've put a very clear sort of position in that Interpol has around sort of, look, use existing channels that already exist. Don't create new channels because sometimes we're very good at reinventing that wheel. Making sure cybercrime is a priority. Making sure public-private partnerships are used within that as well. And also strengthening that sort of country's collaboration and cooperation. So coming back then to how that works on a country-to-country basis, our role is to put those countries together. Now, we see some countries, I'll give an example, probably the best way is to give an example, Nigeria. We had some private data sets in from one of our private partners, which clearly identified criminal activity in Nigeria in a specific area, right down to who the people were. So we then spoke to Nigeria police about that. They were really interested and they wanted to do something about it. We then worked with our countries where there were victims. So effectively, we became the facilitator and the broker of information. So that was shared. The victim data was shared directly into Nigeria. Nigeria then did the arrests. Now, we were able to help them do that because we have seconded officials and contract staff working the Africa region now as part of our Africa region operations desk. So we had dedicated staff and resources which we could apply to support them. And they've carried out multiple arrests. They've done single arrests, they've done group arrests, and that's continuing. Now, one of the discussions I had, our, our vice president, Babaruma, is, is from Nigeria. And I said, look, Baba, you know, it seems bad to me that we keep focusing on Nigeria. And he was like, no, no, Craig, you're missing the point. We know we have criminals in our country. We want to arrest them. We want to show our communities that we're protecting global communities from criminals in our country. And I felt a little bit better after that. But then we have other countries who take the approach. So that was you know, a country identifying, arresting, disrupting, and prosecuting people in their own country. Then we have other countries where they will unseal an indictment and say, yeah, we have these three cyber criminals we've identified who were committing crime globally, ransomware attacks, that are impacting on our hospitals, public schools, things like that. But they're not able to have that direct conversation with that country. So my role then was to write to the director of that organization and say, how can Interpol support you? How can I then take that data and go into that country directly and say, here you go. This is the information that we have. And also, they said they were committing crimes in, in your country. What are you doing about it? So that's where Interpol acts as that neutral interlocker. So we can work on this in many different ways. And also, as I said, the, the ISPs, you know, going after some of the infrastructure as well. You know, we don't want to take down the internet from it. That's the last thing we want to do. What we want to do is make it more safer for people to be able to use the internet effectively in their day-to-day lives, businesses, social, everything like that. Okay. 
Excellent. So you had mentioned having gaps in manpower so that, you know, we had positions to fill. What you guys are working on sounds very interesting, very exciting. What are some of the skill sets? What are some of the talents that law enforcement out there in the world who might be listening to us? What are the things that you're looking for? What could people be working on? And then to add to that part of the question, what are the skills that you're going to be looking for? So what would you add to that if you could, you know, repost these jobs? So I think this is where we look at that division of labor effectively. We look at, in the policing model, we've always been fairly well self-contained. We've worked as a, a local entity in a community. So effectively, we've pulled the data and information in. We've worked internally. We have the resources, the vehicles, the technology to go and do the arrests bring them into a custody centre, interview them, and take them through that judicial process. So that policing model is very much based on a, on a sort of local delivery. In cybercrime and any sort of transnational crime type, this is where then you have to bring the policing model together on an international basis. We do a lot around sort of digital forensics. So we arrest someone, you know, we seize their devices and we go through those in detail. But the volumes of data and information now that policing are dealing with is really, really challenging. So looking about how we use those data sets effectively, what's the final outcome that we're looking at? Are we always going to look at that judicial outcome? And I think, you know, part of arresting someone or taking away their liberty, only the police can do that. Uh -huh. So, you know, that is still a factor about, you know, arresting criminals, disrupting them and, and locking them up effectively and taking them out of play, you know, does work. But on the other hand, that that policing model of how we use data information. So when you say about the, the gaps, it's about not just in the people, it's about the technology that we knew that we need to use that would make us more effective and efficient. And I'd still you know, advocate for that public-private partnerships. We hear it all the time, you know, oh, we need public-private partnerships. They're really important about data and information sharing. Yes. But what are the outputs and outcomes we're looking at from that? Because you know, let's look at our private partners that we work. I don't have the capability or capacity at Interpol and even at a national level in policing, we do not have those capability capacity to be able to use those those tools and techniques, but also the sort of sensors or indicators that are seen because of the monitoring that goes on. That monitoring is done by the private sector, not by the police. So how do we use that more effectively? And I think that's where then you have this sort of merging of law enforcement, cybersecurity companies, tech companies, looking at how do we do the prevention police? And I said that, that prevention is vital. So who's best placed in that? The detection investigation is very much a joint process. And then the disruption, yes, private sector relying on quite often to do some of that disruption work, but the arrest and the prosecution still comes back, back to law enforcement. So I think the gaps we have are in knowledge and how we operate. The model of policing on a national basis, when we look at how we struggle with the development of national cyber strategies, and the, and the US have just launched their cyber strategy early this year, there's now a very detailed implementation plan. But they've taken the approach now as two differences I've seen in their strategy compared to other strategies I've seen. The first one is trying to take the onus away from individual and small businesses being so responsible for their sort of cyber detection. So it's almost coming back to that, look, 
we know this is a big problem. This is a big challenge. And you can't do this as a single person. When you think about all the different platforms and tools we log on to, that the gaps there are very, very big. And yeah, there's vulnerabilities there. Uh-huh. And the other part they looked at was around putting the onus on companies that are providing software about building that security into the software. So, you know, I, I call it safety by design. It's like, you know, why does a car have a seatbelt? Well, the reason a car has a seatbelt is to protect the occupant in that vehicle if there's a crash. So I think some of those traditional models that we have around protection of people is now starts to be applied, but actually it's been pushed in this time by the government effectively. So I think there's going to be a sort of a coming together at some point. And we look at solar wind. So, you know, there are vulnerabilities that criminals take advantage of. Now, no one's designed those in on purpose, far from it, but it just means that technology needs to have safety built into it mm-hmm. and as the internet as it sort of expanded so quickly the vulnerabilities or attack services that are available to criminals are out there so i think that that, that skill set that policing has can be filled and is filled by the private sector mm-hmm. but i think in terms of how we operate glo- regionally and globally there needs to be a difference now in, in in how we operate as policing so it's not so locally led it's locally delivered, but more aggregation can be done at a regional level and also an international level as well. Yeah. So I also was pleased to see that the U.S. government had uh, reissued a new policy. I was lucky enough to help start one of the ISACs, and that was out of the previous approach to the cyber policy, like you said, very much designed to try to enable the end, uh, the end of the chain, if you will, like the idea was these systems are so vast, so broadly deployed, let's just enable these people to get there. And the reality though, I think as it turns out, was that the demand for technology was so high that people were kind of forced to be enabling these things and the securing of them was kind of outside of their ability. And like they, if they could probably do it some other way, they wouldn't do it digitally to begin with, but it's kind of, that's the way things are done now. So you have to do this. So I I was also glad to see that. I have always thought that the potential of US CERT, for example, was much bigger than, than its actual utility today. So I was also, I was glad to see that they had actually made those shifts. I hope that catches on. I think that's a really important point. You've just mentioned the sort of the CERT models that uh, are in countries as well. So effectively, if you look at what a CERT does, it's there to protect the country. Uh-huh. So, you know, their model is looking right across the different sort of critical national infrastructure, information, things like that as well. So actually, if you look at that through a police system, that's very much what the police are there to do is to protect and prevent. Sure. So... Again, when we're describing this, and I, I think we're our own worst enemies at times in how we describe things. We go very technical very quickly, and then that puts a lot of people off because you know people don't want to be seen to be ignorant. So sometimes you know there is a, a nodding of heads when actually they're thinking, "What have you just said? I don't, I don't quite get it." And there is that. I wouldn't say emperor's new clothes in this, but there is a little bit of that. And if we look at AI as well now, there's a huge explosion discussed around AI. That's been around for years. But actually, it's the, the latest, shiniest thing, effectively. Now, that I can see will reach a peak and then drop down as well. But what that is actually doing now is generating a lot of discussion. Therefore, a lot of resources going into that, effectively. <laughs> and people saying, well, how's AI going to be? What's it going to do? Look, it's a technology. You know, it's there to help but also it can cause 
harm as well, like anything can. It's like, you know, a car is not designed to commit a crime, but a criminal will use it to drive to do a crime. So it's a similar sort of thing as that enabling. So when I've been trying to explain it, I'm, I'm trying to explain it by speaking to my mum, who's 88, and bless her, I had very long conversations from Singapore on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning to my mum. And, you know, we have these sort of really round, you know, family conversations. But she's always asked me what I'm doing and things like that. So I'm trying to explain it in terms that my 88-year-old mother understand. Sometimes I manage it, sometimes I don't. But yeah. again, back when we were having these conversations, you know, this will be going out probably to an audience that, that get it, understand the technology. So actually what they may want to know is more around, you know, well, actually, this is going on globally on the law enforcement side, and this is how you can plug into that. And are you aware that there's global strategies going on? Are you aware of the work of the United Nations? So, yeah, it's trying to sort of bust those myths effectively or make it so it is more understandable. Sure. So you mentioned AI. Does AI have a place in policing? Would you say oh, sure. uh, are we headed for the Tom Cruise Minority Report future? <laughs> uh, or is there some other version of the story? Yeah, I, I think everybody does this when we talk about AI. You know, you, you, you sort of go to Matrix, you go to Tom Cruise, you know, you go to Terminator, all those sort of those doomsday scenarios sound out new people. No, you set it up. You set it up it, by it, hand. I had to. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's <laughs> what we know. So look, here in Singapore, we've got an innovation centre as well. The innovation centre is sort of forward scanning all the time. There's a lot of work been going on for the last three, four years around AI. So first of all, responsible use of AI for law enforcement. So what does that mean? Breaking down and making the understanding clear, what is AI? What is generative AI? What does that mean? And then we've got, for example, young global police leaders. So we've got global police leaders who are going to be our leaders in 10, 15 years' time. You know, really bright individuals. We bring those together. So they're bringing in different views from countries as well. Mm -hmm. We've worked and produced a number of reports in this area. But I think it comes back to sort of cybercrime, that the, the criminals are not going to care about regulation. That doesn't impact them, really. It li wow. Maybe a little bit. But they will find a way around things. So in terms of when we talk about, well, we've got to regulate AI, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Okay, you know, the internet started. Have we regulated the internet? Are we, you know, really pushing into, or should we push into that area? So again, I think these are conversations we are having around AI what we'll see in the future is a bit like the tools that are available to cyber criminals. Five, ten years ago, only a few states would have been able to operate or use those tools or have access to them. So if you look at that model, it's gone straight down like that. The ease and accessibility of tools now that allows criminals to operate in cybercrime is one thing. So we take that across to AI. You know, the criminals will be using and looking to see how they can use AI more effectively. And we're already seeing that in the way sort of, you know, some of the phishing scams have done some things like that. I don't want to use the word they're more sophisticated. It's not about them being sophisticated. It's more about them being more authentic and more realistic. That's what I would say. So you can see already, you know, where English is not the first language of some of the cyber criminals, and you could spot that sometimes. I think AI is going to help sort of smooth that area out for the criminals, but then also how sort of genus AI is used how it develops further, and we look at the big sort of pool, shall we say, of data, you know, we now have access to them. If we have access to them, the criminals have access to them. So they will be looking at opportunities around how they can commit crime. But also, realistically, it's about how can they make money? It's a business model. So it just happens that a business model is illegal. 
But again, as we would use it in business, or sorry, yourselves and others would use it in business to help facilitate your business, the criminals are looking at it as well. Sure. Okay. So let's talk something about the future. What is the future for Interpol? Like what do you guys have initiative plans? Are there future milestones you're working towards? Where are you guys headed and what do you guys hope to accomplish in the next, let's say, five years? So you've teed me up perfectly. Uh, Interpol celebrates its 100th anniversary this year, and we didn't rehearse this question, by the way. So it's our 100th anniversary. Why, why was Interpol formed back in 1923? It was formed in order for police to be able to share information and data. So actually, our core purpose about you know creating and making the world safer and connecting people, policing for a safer world is still correct. You know, 100 plus years ago. So as we look at 101 years, through to about 110 years, what does that look like? Well, the first thing is around building out those frameworks. And by frameworks, it's around building out that model that allows law enforcement to communicate effectively in certain crime areas, whether it's cybercrime, financial crime, counterterrorism, and making Interpol more operational. And by operational, it's not about us directing the operational, running the operation. It's about we published an Interpol Global Crime Trend Report last year, First time Interpol has published such a report, which I found, hang on a minute, we're you know, a policing organisation, why aren't we producing a global crime report? So that's now done. Our regional threat assessments we're producing in cyber. So again, understanding the threat, the impact of the threat, and then designing out that policing model to deal with that. So that, that framework, and like we have in Africa, where we now have staff working directly in Africa, based in Africa, seconded officials from local agencies in Africa because they have the local knowledge we want to do local delivery. We then dock that in here in Singapore to our cybercrime threat response, our intel. So we aggregate data sets here. What we want to do on that side is bring in more of that sort of first community, Masert community. So the data sets that that first responder sees, because police are not the first responders to cybercrime. Mm-hmm. We don't get that call. Oh, come quick, come quick. We've had a ransomware. No. We're unlikely to be even knowing about that. So in terms of who do we dock into to bring some of that data into Interpol as well, and what do we then do with it? So that framework that we're building out, the America's desk that we're building is going to be different from the Africa desk. And the reason it's going to be different because America is different from, the America's region is different from Africa. So their model is going to be based down in Buenos Aires. We're going to have people based in Buenos Aires. It links all the way up through sort of South Central Latin America. And then we can bring in America, Canada, and the Caribbean into that desk and support it effectively. But it linkages back to that sort of hub and spoke model. We then provide that action intelligence out into those countries through the regional desk where we're looking at the offenders or the enablers or the sort of technology that's supporting crime. So as we build this out, it is a global framework delivering locally and impact locally. That's what we're doing more of. It's also bringing more staff into Interpol and using the tools and channels we've built in the last three years. So the Secure Collaborative Platform for Operations is a secure platform where we can bring data information onto that platform. We only allow the countries that are working on that investigation to come onto that platform, or the private partners as well or assert. So that is a closed, secure platform. There's nothing else globally in law enforcement that can do that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, in the sort of 
the Slack groups and things like that. So we look at what was spun up during COVID. We had a couple of Slack groups running globally. Not for us, but we were part of those groups. Uh-huh. So there was a, a global threat and effectively globally, but if you like, the, the cybersecurity industry came together very, very well in that. And they were sharing a lot of information. Our role at Interpol is to do exactly the same thing with law enforcement, for law enforcement. So the build is to build that out over the next five to 10 years effectively, grow that model and make sure that Interpol is there leading the way, supporting our countries in countering and combating cybercrime. Okay. So last question for you. What are some pieces of advice, actionable ideally, that you would give to, let's say, three groups of people, law enforcement people out in the world who are hoping to have the opportunity to go to something like Interpol, secondarily to practitioners out there in the world who are dealing with cybercrime themselves and could potentially see Interpol as a resource. And then lastly, policymakers around the world for them to understand it. If you could give one piece of advice to each of those three, uh, what would that advice be? So I think to all three, it's about building that trust model. What does that trust model look like? So I, I would apply that to all three because on a local basis, we have local bias. By local, I mean national. There is a national bias effectively. But what is the role of policing? Our role is to protect life and property and prevent crime. That, that's the basic sort of tenet of policing. So looking at that and through the sort of local police officer lens, how can they work more effectively with, with Interpol? So first of all, have they ever communicated with Interpol? Do they know how to communicate with Interpol on the cyber side of things? Um, we're just about to have our global cybercrime conference here in October. We've got probably over 100 countries going to be represented. So part of our role then is to demonstrate what Interpol is doing and also listening. We have to listen as Interpol to our member countries and the communities that we serve. And that's what we've done because we listened. They said we don't have connectivity, we don't have the tools, so we provided the tools. So from a law enforcement point of view, I'd say use Interpol tools and channels is the first one. When you're looking at the sort of practitioners out there that are sort of in the cybersecurity industry, is you'll be eyes and ears. You see what's going out there. That's why we have our public-private partnerships. That's why we work with so many companies. You know, look at how and what you do in your day-to-day work that is going to stop a criminal causing harm. Mm-hmm. So I think, in me, those are the points I would use in, in, in that. Yeah, it's not the police. You're not going to go out and do the arrest. But how often is it that, you know, an incident team will go into a company, they will do all that sort of first response stuff, get the company back up and running, you know, thank you very much, everybody moves on. Well, there'll be a whole bunch of data or information there. What can we do with that data and information to help us identify the criminals or the TTPs behind that so we can actually then, you know, identify and prevent those systemic risks in systems and networks that criminals are able to take advantage of? How do we share that more widely? And lastly, to the policymakers, I think it's things like, as I said, the United Nations, the work we've been doing with the United Nations, that to me has been a you know, once in a career opportunity for me, but also for law enforcement and Interpol to feed into a global process, mm-hmm. which because of the role Interpol has and you know the reach we have, we've been able to play a really important part into that. But again, it's around those policymakers in countries when they're making those you know national cyber strategies, is looking about well what you're doing on the national level. What also needs to be done internationally, because I still see some of those strategies, many of those strategies written with a national 
lens on, or we're going to work with these countries and countries, but effectively we're not going to work with these ones. Well, that doesn't really solve the problems that we have that the cyber criminals are taking advantage of. So how do we really address those? What are the different tools, mechanisms, platforms we can use in that? And I would suggest Interpol is a perfect tool and vehicle yeah, it's been created and running for over 100 years very successfully. We're changing our business model as well in the way that we operate. Well, thank you. So, Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a very interesting, very enlightening conversation. I think a lot of folks, like you said at the beginning of our session here, they really don't understand what the full role of Interpol was. So I have no doubt that a lot of folks will leave listening to the podcast today, having a much better understanding of what the role of Interpol is in, in global law enforcement, fighting cybercrime. So if nothing else, hopefully they'll realize that there is some value in reporting. I think that's one of the shortcomings is a lot of people say, why would I bother reporting this breach? Because nothing will come of it. So if nothing else, uh, perhaps you'll give people hope uh, that there is in fact a mechanism to make something you know happen to that stuff. If folks are interested in hearing more about either Interpol's counter cybercrime activities or your own uh, reportings on these types of things, is there uh, some locations that you would propose that they track either for Interpol or yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've got an Interpol website. Just go on there, look at cybercrime. A lot of our stuff is on there. And he just made a really interesting point, and I didn't pick up on it during the uh, discussion we had, is around that information and reporting. So a lot of reporting goes in at a national level. One of the projects we're trying to get off the ground at the moment is when that report is made, if it is made, what's the important piece of information in there that could be aggregated at Interpol? So let's just say there's a side, you know, there's a ransomware attack in the US, India, Australia, UK, China, wherever. Uh -huh. you know, there's information in there that if we aggregate that at Interpol, would help us one better understand the threat, but also then identify potentially the threat actors or infrastructure behind that. So that's again, that's a really interesting point just to be in there about where sure. you look at Interpol's role as a global aggregator. And also, if that crime was solved, that person who's reported that crime, knowing X amount of months or years later, ah, because I reported that, right. something happened. And I think, again, that sort of piece around that policing in the community and the public confidence as well, mm -hmm. I think that's another really important point where Interpol has got a role to play. Yeah, absolutely. And the public confidence is, it would be a sure outcome of that. So do you have social media yourself? Are you active on LinkedIn, places like that, uh, where folks yeah. aren't you there? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, you'll see me on there. I put a lot of my activities on there as well. Okay. So my main channel is LinkedIn. We've got Twitter as well as a cybercrime directorate. So there's, there's pieces go on there. So people okay. can see what we're doing on a regular basis. But a lot of stuff is on our, our Interpol website as well. We, we keep that as updated as we can. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Craig, thanks again for joining us today. I hope you guys keep on fighting a good fight uh, and help catch more bad guys. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.